Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, Dr. Afshin Sahahi and Yavid Alipur explore the enduring impact of the Mossadi coup in Iran, 70 years after this pivotal event. Recorded at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode delves into Iran's role in the Middle East, its global relationships and its future in a complex geopolitical landscape. at the Bradford Literature Festival is looking at uh, the Middle East and some of these very important uh, dates. Uh, this one, I think, clearly fits into that, not only uh, within the national narrative of Iran, uh, but really also, I would argue, in the national narrative of Great Britain, uh, the United States, and, of course, occurring within the broader backdrop of the Cold War. And that is the 1953 coup d'etat uh, overthrowing a democratically elected uh, Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh uh, in Iran, and uh, looking not only at uh, the causes of the coup, uh, the coup itself, uh, but then also what were the consequences of uh, the coup. So we will uh, have a discussion, uh, a conversation uh, for roughly about 40 minutes, and then we will certainly reserve uh, some time for uh, what I'm sure are some uh, very trenchant questions that you have. Uh, for my uh, esteemed uh, panelists here. So let's get started first uh, with what was Iran uh, positioned as being in uh, the years uh, of World War II? Let's kind of go back a little bit uh, before 1953. How did things look? And whoever wants to go ahead and jump in. Okay, Afshin. Well, first of all, thank you very much for uh, chairing uh, the panel and thank you very much for attending uh, this session. I didn't know that uh, Mossadegh's uh, uh, kind of history can generate so much interest. I was so surprised to see the 35 people uh, attending this event, and hopefully uh, within the next uh, 45 minutes, we can address some of the issues related to this very, very important uh, episode of Iranian history, uh, as, uh, as you mentioned. Of course, when we talk about uh, kind of the First World War and the Second World War, very rarely we think of, uh, of the Middle East, very rarely we think uh, of uh, Iran. Uh, but Iran was heavily uh, affected uh, by, uh, by the Second World War. It was occupied by both Russia uh, and uh, Britain. Uh, not only it was occupied by these two uh, kind of great powers, uh, but it also played a very important and instrumental role uh, for the victory of the Allies uh, in, the, in, the, in the war. Uh, and as most of you probably know, uh, the most important uh, kind of phase of the 20th century immediately after the Second World War is obviously the Cold War. And the Cold War started in, in Iran. Uh, when the Brits uh, and the Russians uh, kind of agreed to occupy Iran, the agreement was that immediately after the war that they have to withdraw their forces and for combination of reasons that maybe we can talk about them uh, later on, they wanted to kind of keep Iran uh, kind of... Uh, independence. But immediately after the war, not surprisingly, uh, Joseph Stalin refused uh, to withdraw. And he wanted to kind of create a communist satellite state in Azerbaijan. And actually, to a degree, he was successful. Uh, kind of that puppet uh, kind of state uh, uh, kind of popped up. Uh, and that kind of triggered 
the very beginning of this kind of lengthy confrontation uh, between the Soviet Union uh, and the United States. That's something that we recognize as, uh, as, uh, as the Cold War. So Iran came out of the war uh, extremely shattered, uh, uh, exhausted. Uh, the resources of the country were uh, exploited, both by the Russians uh, and, uh, and the Brits, despite the fact that Iran declared a neutral position before the war, uh, but it paid a uh, very uh, heavy uh, price. A few decades before that, the country kind of experienced uh, a, another very, very important episode, and that was the Constitutional Revolution, and that kind of paved the way for the establishment of the first constitutional monarchy uh, in, the, in, the, in Asia. Despite the fact that you know, uh, the war and, the, uh, and kind of the political instability uh, really did not kind of create a functioning uh, democracy, but in the kind of early 1950s, uh, the Dr. Mohammad Mossadegh, uh, who was actually the cousin uh, of the, wi uh, the, the wife of the previous Gachar monarch, uh, King uh, Nasreddin Shah, who ruled Iran for about uh, kind of 50 years, he was elected by uh, by the Majlis, by the Parliament, uh, and uh, and uh, he comes to uh, power. And at that time, uh, very briefly, I just uh, wrap up. Uh, the Iranian uh, oil industry effectively was monopolized by Anglo-Iranian company. Today, we recognize it uh, as uh, as B uh, uh, British Petroleum. Uh, and, and obviously, Iran was getting a very kind of unfair share uh, of the deal. And of course, Iran uh, was one of the, fir the first country that uh, oil was discovered in it in the Middle East in 1908 by, uh, by William, uh, William Darcy. So basically, the independent the kind of the nationalization movement uh, kind of gained momentum in the early 1950s, which was led by Mohammad Mossadegh, and he managed to finally uh, nationalize uh, an oil industry, which at the time was uh, very much like the Suez Canal, uh, monopolized by the foreign powers, including uh, the United Kingdom. Right. Um, I mean, just to show you how strategically important Iran was, uh, especially in World War II, uh, remember at this time, uh, Hitler had uh, invaded uh, uh, the Soviet Union by uh, breaching uh, the Ribbentrop-Molotov uh, Non-Aggression Act, uh, or pact, and uh, the only way to get uh, supplies into the Soviet Union were by way of, uh, of Iran, um, Iran also having been occupied by the Russians and the British um, and serving as a buffer state between the two empires even before World they War II. They called it the World Bridge War. of Victory. It was the Bridge of Victory. Uh, a, a bit of, a, of a, an anecdote regarding America's uh, involvement in the, in the Middle East. Uh, the American who was in uh, Iran uh, directing the supplies through it uh, was a man uh, whose surname was Schwarzkopf. And of course, his son then returns to the region uh, in Iraq in 1991 as uh, General Storman Norman Schwarzkopf, uh, who was the leader of Operation Desert Storm. So American fascination with, uh, uh, with the region uh, actually existed uh, before that. Um, Javad, you, you have the situation where Iran is now trying to restabilize itself after a very traumatic period during World War II. Uh, 1941, uh, the former uh, Shah Reza Shah abdicates in favor of his son, uh, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who then is uh, in power in this constitutional monarchy uh, as Iran emerges from the war. 
And right around this time in 1950, there is the enactment of the Nationalization Act. So take us through that a bit. Um, well, I, I suppose my, the, thank you, thank you, thanks for having us. I suppose what, um, uh, the kind of uh, introductory remarks I might make, if you like, or, or the, the kind of contextual remarks about that period, I would say that, first of all, obviously the, the abdication of uh, Riza Khan, Riza Pahlavi, in favor of his son, happens at the moment where he where the British and the Russians occupy the country. So it's, it's not perhaps the most voluntary abdication that's ever happened in human history. Um, and his son uh, sort of takes over from, from that. I think in terms of in, uh, thinking about this period more broadly, there's, a, there's, a, there's probably a couple of things that's, that's really interesting to say. One of which is, as, as Afshin uh, you know, very succinctly put it, this is in the context of some stuff that's starting in the Constitutional Revolution and even before. And I think one of the ways that you can think about one of the many ways you can tell the story of Iranian politics from kind of uh, 1906 onwards is you can talk about a bigger and bigger constituency, as it were, entering the stage of history in terms of thinking about themselves as being part of the nation of Iran, of thinking about there being a political project for them to be a part of. And in that, in that moment that you're talking about, just after the Second World War, there is a new section of Iranian society which has kind of in the mix having something to play for. If we go back to just like the 1870s, 1880s, you know, Iran is, uh, is, not, is, is so different to, let's say, Belgium of today that, you know, it, it's very difficult to sort, sort of describe. It's, not a, it's a country where, for instance, in any great city, uh, you do Tabriz or Tehran, will be divided not only uh, along lines of religious affiliation, but certain intra-Shia forms of re religious affiliation that don't even exist anymore. Um, neighborhoods, in some cases, had a sort of quasi-ethnic status, I believe. Organizations around Mahalis and this, they called them. And so, the, the, it, you know, we really can't oversimplify what a journey it's been to get from that point to a point where people think we are the members of a national community and we have some reason to fight for each other. One, so through the uh, Constitutional Revolution and, and First World War and so on, like in a lot of countries that you could say met modernity through the intercession of imperialist powers to some degree, some of the first people who start to articulate kind of a sense of what it means for to have a national identity as Iranians are very, very elite people, right? So people close to the center of power, the first people to meet modern ideas and so on. But one interesting thing about Iran is we've, we've, we've always had, we've always had, uh, there's always been um, a bit of a movement from below there as well. And we can go into a slightly different conversation, but the point is when we get to this moment after the Second World War, um, there are the beginnings of mass political organizations in Iran to some degree. So um, when we say that Mossadegh was democratically elected, um, you know, uh, that there's caveats to that, right? He wasn't, he was elected, it, it wasn't a presidential election, you know, he didn't win the election in that way. A series of governments fell and then he kind of ended up taking power. You know, it wasn't, uh, uh, you know, women weren't allowed to vote, there, there was no, you know, so, so it was kind of democratic in the broad sense, but not necessarily as we would understand. But that pressure of those civil society organizations was trying to be built. So, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi would inherit a country where the two-day party, which was the, the second uh, great Iranian Communist Party, if you like, was a fairly substantial thing, right? So it was uh, in the, the nascent, th there was in terms of industry in Iran, obviously it was still a country that wasn't industrial, you know, far from it, but there were pockets of really important industry. Not only the crucial oil industry, where my understanding is the two-day had 
like quite a lot of power amongst uh, sort of salaried middle class. Insofar as Iranians were allowed to be salaried and middle class, there they had uh, we say in Persian nufuz. I've forgotten the English word. It is uh, yeah nufuz. Uh, like you know, the uh, memberships there basically. They had people it there, and also in terms of the working class base. Ditto the two. They had quite a lot of um, membership in the garment industry in the cities of Persia and so on. And so you're at this moment where you have a, a increasing section of society that starts to think of itself as having a sense of political agency. That starts to look at uh, Anglo-Iranian oil now British Petroleum, which you know has clear resonances with the classic uh, colonial corporations of domination, right? Your East India companies, your so on and so on. Um, and I think Mohammad Reza Pahlavi inherits a, a moment where not only are these civil society organizations being built, but the iron fist, as it were, of Reza Khan, his father's quite tough security atmosphere, has fallen apart. Oh, that's, that's no, no, a verbose uh, way of answering your question. That was not verbose at all. I mean, you're talking about decades and centuries of history. I mean, the fact that you're able to distill it into, uh, you know, four and a half minutes is, 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 is impressive. Um, I know my students feel I could do that, but I have to throw it on for 15, <laughs> uh, 15 weeks. Um, but then, you know, I have to justify my paycheck. Uh, but, I mean, you're, you're, you're looking at a, at, a, at a longer arc. I mean, uh, a political activism. I mean, we think about the tobacco protest of 1891 where after uh, Nasruddin Shah had essentially given the national commodity uh, over to a British interest, uh, that brings about uh, an almost immediate uh, a backlash which mobilizes uh, Bazari merchants, clergy, uh, and others uh, against him. He has to then rescind it. Four years later, uh, he is, uh, he's uh, killed leading then to the constitutional uh, movement of, uh, of 1907. Uh, by the way, uh, Reza Aslan is here at the festival with his really excellent biography of Howard Baskerville, this uh, young 20s-something uh, recent graduate of Princeton University, goes to Iran and essentially becomes a martyr in this, uh, in this movement. Um, and so it seems as though there's something in the ethos about, uh, about uh, the Iranian people to, to, then, um, uh, to then invoke their as you said, political agency. But I'm really struck by what you said about nationalism. And here we have this moment of moving from, say, uh, notions of empire and maybe uh, some level of balkanization to the state, uh, to the idea of nationalism. And now we have a new product. We have oil. As you said, William Darcy, no relationship to a Jane Austen novel, um, uh, coming in and uh, Describe a little bit about the Anglo-Iranian oil corporation at Abadan. Um, Stephen Kinzer, by the way, has written a very good book called All the Shah's Men. Uh, he's a New York Times cor uh, uh, reporter uh, looking at this issue. Uh, it, uh, it, it, would, it would suggest that Anglo-Iranian was a, uh, a partnership of equals, but uh, I think uh, reality is quite different from that. I mean, certainly not. I mean, there was no uh, partnership. Well, tell us how you really feel. <laughs> <laughs> Equals uh, for, for obvious reasons. I mean, as you said, Javad, very uh, correctly, uh, that, you know, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, Iran, like so many other countries in the Middle East, were going through a lot of drastic uh, transitions. And we should not forget that in the early days of the 20th century, the authority of the central government in Tehran literally did not go beyond a few streets, even in Tehran. At the time, Iran was considered as one of the most unstable countries, even by the regional standards, one of the unsafest countries, even by the regional standards. So some Iranian traders 
if they had to travel basically across the country, it was in their interest to actually do it just like this, go through Iraq and then actually go to Tehran. So it was a lot safer to go to actually travel through the neighboring countries rather than uh, Iran. And of course, the sense of nationalism uh, was also a new thing. Uh, Iran was divided by so many ethnicities, uh, by uh, different languages were spoken uh, across, uh, across, uh, across the country. Of course, the idea of Iran always existed, but nationalism, in the way we understand it today, is completely a new phenomenon. I mean, of course, where nationalism comes from has been the subject of academic debates for a very long time. You know, uh, I'm personally a modernist, but there are also some primordialists maybe in the room who believe that maybe there is something very organic and natural about nationalism. I certainly don't believe that. I don't believe there is anything organic or anything even natural about it. N nationalism is the product of modernity. It's one of the products of modernity. So we're effectively talking about basically a new phenomenon. And in the period that we are talking about, this is the very beginning of the modern Iranian nation-building uh, process. And even at the time, uh, you know, uh, if you kind of went beyond Tehran, different parts of the country effectively were ruled by different uh, warlords. So the authority of the, uh, the central government, as I said repeatedly, was very, uh, very limited. So when the Brits arrived, you know, of course, I mean, there was no kind of equal uh, partnership because, you know, effectively the country did not have the infrastructure. People did not even make sense of why, you know, these Westerners care so much uh, about these kind of little kind of smelly product uh, on the, uh, uh, under the ground. But, you know, just after the uh, First World War, uh, British Navy, which at the time was the biggest uh, kind of Navy in the world, decided to switch. Uh, their uh, kind of fuel uh, from coal to oil. So all of the sudden, within the context of the British Empire and beyond, oil kind of gained a lot of uh, uh, the kind of uh, importance uh, and significance. So uh, kind of the Brits have started to kind of invest heavily uh, in, the, in the refineries, particularly in the southern part of the country, in the city of Abadan. And actually until about mid-1950s, the refinery in Abadan was the largest uh, in, the, in the world. And effectively, because of the coup, I mean, this is something that we're going to talk about, uh, Abadan lost its kind of uh, central significance, and it never ever was able to regain its uh, kind of uh, uh, central, uh, central position. So there was a very unequal relationship between the state uh, and uh, basically the Anglo-Iranian uh, kind of company despite the fact that you know, uh, uh, the oil was obviously geographically located in Iran, but the state was kind of getting a very insignificant portion of the profit. And actually when Mossadegh uh, comes to power, I mean, this is one of the main instigators where the row kind of started. Mossadegh wanted to audit uh, kind of the accounts of the Anglo-Iranian uh, company to see what's happening, what goes in, what goes out. And then of course, not surprisingly, uh, uh, kind of the Anglo-Iranian company kind of refused because they didn't have to because in the end, you know, it is the power that talks. And we are still talking about the time that Britain is still consider itself as a mighty uh, kind of empire, a very important uh, political uh, player uh, in, the, in the world stage. So in the early 1950s, already 
a sense of collective consciousness is about to emerge, the sense of national consciousness is about to emerge, the sense of Iranianness is about to emerge, when the sense of Iranianness uh, comes into the play, when the sense of collective consciousness comes into the play, what follows is the sense of national entitlement. It is very easy to make that kind of argument. Now we are part of the same entity, we are part of the same body, we have a lot of resources, and maybe we can use actually these resources to build up uh, kind of a, a better future. And um, this had happened before. I mean, in, uh, in 1911, the Russians uh, uh, objected to the Iranians trying to audit the books. And uh, because the Iranians were bringing in Morgan Schusterman, uh, an American, and uh, they, in fact, gave an ultimatum to uh, have to dissolve parliament, mm. uh, uh, thr thrusting uh, Iran into a bit of chaos uh, right before the war. So the Nationalization Act of 1950 then is actually uh, enact, uh, applied by Mossadegh in 1951 after his, uh, his election. Uh, according to international law, any country can nationalize an industry sector within its boundaries and its borders, provided it pays fair market value for that. Uh, of course, that means that uh, the uh, prior owner would be cut off from any future revenue, and here there was ostensibly more oil to be drawn from the ground. Uh, how did the Iranian people take uh, this nationalization, and how was it received in places like Whitehall and Washington? So it's a really interesting question. Um, I just want to put that in that context of what you were talking about before as well, if that's all right. Sure. I particularly enjoyed your description of uh, Iran th that Morgan Schuster walked into walked into his a little bit of trouble. Like that's that's yeah. one way to put it. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, well, that's I mean, it, I'm I'm in England. I have to understate things. So. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's right. Um, uh, yeah, what I would say is so just that, that example you were giving about the auditing of the books. So in, in the context of the Anglo-Iranian oil oil company and the 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 the, the, the nationalisation act and, and the kind of row that is a brewing. What's really key to point out is I think is a couple of things that, that, that perhaps sometimes go against people's assumptions about the case. One is that uh, where the naughtiest parts of the actual row with the, with the British was, there was a bunch of points of principle that the British wouldn't move on. Uh, so uh, the British, it seems, some of the documentary events, seems to, as far as I've read, seems to suggest now that the British were more willing to move on percentage division of profits than they were on what they perceived as points of principle, which was no Iranian has the right to audit the books, which was the bar on Iranians being allowed technical jobs, um, and which were these things that feel, to be honest with you, a bit more structural and actually just, just imperialist. It seems like they were willing to give ground on some of that stuff. And this is in a context where, there's a, in Kinsner's book, actually, there's a brilliant discussion of a, some kind of Russian colonial bod, because they're the, you know, the power in the north, who sends uh, one of these kind of like anthropological texts back to the government about advising them on policies on Iran. He says, the thing about the Iranians is, he says, the difficulty with Iranians is, you know, uh, they sometimes seem like they could do a technical job, but you mustn't trust them. Um, which I think <laughs> I've always enjoyed that for some. I don't know. Uh, you know, I think it's a, a raises a bit of a smile for me. So this is th it's in that context, you know, where some of that reception in your White Halls, in your in the State Department, is happening, and there is a huge amount of debate now around uh, the other really important bit of context to give, which I think is fairly unproblematical, is to say that sometimes, especially center center left politics, we are used to talking about kind of a Western imperialism in, let's say, in that region or in other regions. I think what's really important to say is uh, the Americans and the British probably did work together to, to a certain degree to foment this coup, and there was, you know, we can get into the details of that. 
But what's really important to say is, as far as I understand, in the rest of the region, this was one of the few times when the Americans and the Brits ended up on the same side try, trying to want to achieve the same thing with their policy, right? They hated each other in that region, I think it's fairly fair to say through most of the post-war period. Um, and I think the, some of the understanding I have of this will come from, like, uh, you know, there was a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an argument that the Americans have, have become relatively comfortable with giving that I th uh, around the time they've kind of, uh, the state, I can't remember who it was, but they apologized for their role in the coup. And that argument went, well, look, uh, you know, the British were being intransigent, as the British want to be. At the time, the British position was that you, they couldn't negotiate with Mossadegh. Again, this was based on, to be honest with you, quite a lot of racism um, and, you know, uh, cynicism. Mossadegh was a very theatrical speaker and performer. He had a habit of... Um, uh, in these court cases around the nationalizations, he had a habit of passing out through the weight of emotion. <laughs> I think, what a guy, do you know what I mean? What a man. Um, and this would trigger, like, his uh, supporters would be in the, I mean, Iranians, man. His supporters would then be in the street, like, beating their chests and screaming, give us death or give us Mossadir. You know, like yeah, exactly. Not a, not a lightness of touch people, historically. Um, and uh, British intelligence and British f uh, Foreign Office people write this up as, well, you can't, this, you know, this isn't, this man doesn't understand how you talk like a normal person. You see, he's a, he's a hysterical Easterner, that kind of thing. Um, and so the, so the American position remembering that has become, well, the Brits were the, Brits were the Brits and kind of, you know, uh, perfidious Albion and wouldn't give anything up. And the Iranians were lunatics and we just didn't want the communists to take over. And so sort of by accident, we ended up in this position. But actually, you know, this is in a context where there are huge amounts of American interests, like in Aramco in Saudi Arabia. There are American interests in oil companies in Venezuela and so on. And, and I think there's an argument that, from the American point of view, they were much less naive falling into difficulties than perhaps they've claimed since. Well, they were also a bit more removed from the kind of colonial and imperial experience and longevity of that in the region compared to uh, the British, yeah. the Russians, and to a lesser degree, uh, the Americans. So you mentioned the whole idea about the communist threat. And again, this is the Cold War. and. Uh, it seems as though in 1951 that was not uh, perceived as being as dangerous as by 1953. Uh, the British had made efforts to try to persuade uh, the United States to act upon what had happened. Uh, Truman was uh, uh, the president at that time. He was a bit distracted by this uh, little thing happening, again, British understatement, uh, on the 38th parallel in uh, the Korean Peninsula. But 1953 brings about a new uh, administration in Washington with Eisenhower and perhaps more consequentially two brothers. Uh, John Foster Dulles, uh, former managing director of Sullivan Cromwell, a major uh, Wall Street multinational uh, company. Thank you. Uh, and his uh, uh, far l uh, more promiscuous uh, brother, uh, Alan, uh, uh, across the Potomac River in Langley, Virginia, who was the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. And if you read Kinzer's other book called, quite cryptically, The Brothers, uh, you will uh, get a really wonderful uh, and very contrasting uh, biography of the two. The one area of convergence that both of them did seem to have is their view uh, geopolitically, that if you weren't fir firmly ensconced in the American side of the ledger, uh, there was no such thing as neutrality. You were uh, uh, de facto uh, in the Soviet uh, camp. And it seems as though this is how they viewed Mossadegh, uh, accusations of him being a bit too close to the Tudeh party, 
him, of course, being in the National Front Party, uh, I'm sure through no uh, dearth of uh, cajoling by the British government uh, on this. How did that then lead to the coup? You know, the history of the two the party, the Iranian Communist Party, is very multifaceted and multidimensional. We could spend many hours just simply talking uh, about the rise and the fall of the party. But obviously, you know, I'm not going to bore you to death. Uh, so I'm just going to kind of shift your attention, our attention to our main kind of focus, which is the Mossadegh uh, era. Until about a year uh, before, uh, before the coup, in fact, the Tudor party, which was banned a while ago because of obviously what happened immediately after the Second World War, because the communists wanted to kind of uh, break apart uh, the country. So uh, Tudor party was outlawed, but from late 1940s, early 1950s, because of combination of factors, uh, you know, we began to see a more kind of proactive uh, Tudor party uh, in, in the country. So particularly in the areas that you know, there were industries in the south, uh, in Abadan, uh, and, and in Tehran. Until about a year, you know, the two depart a year before the coup, the two party regarded Mossadegh as the agent of Uncle Sam, as the agent of the United States, as a, a, kind of a, a political elite from Qajar. He's not the man of people. But when the nationalization uh, kind of business uh, came into the picture, uh, Apparently, they kind of received a new mandate from Moscow uh, to change their position. So all of a sudden, the Tudor party became kind of more Catholic than the Pope. Uh, they became kind of a very uh, kind of a serious supporters uh, of, uh, of Mossadegh, which obviously uh, wasn't very advantageous uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, Mossadegh uh, himself. And the reason that it wasn't advantageous, that because, you know, I'm actually still, I mean, this is a very divisive issue in Iran. I am personally very reluctant to use what happened in 1953, to use the term of coup d'etat. Because if you want to kind of look at it from the political science point of view, what happened in 1953 wasn't a coup d'etat. Did we see a kind of direct, unnecessary, illegitimate involvement of the United States and Britain? Yes, definitely. Do we have evidence to prove it? Yes, definitely. But was it a coup? Certainly not. Why there wasn't a, a kind of a, a coup? And now, sorry, I'm drifting from communism to this issue, but I will uh, kind of uh, uh, go back to it. Because uh, constitutionally, Mossadegh uh, was dismissed by the king. He also unconstitutionally dissolved the parliament. He acted unconstitutionally. So basically, uh, the Shah was under a lot of pressure by Britain and the, the, the United States because they were afraid that maybe he's flirting a little bit too much with the Tudor. He wasn't, but this was the perception uh, at the time. Ashraf, his sister, the sister of the Shah, secretly went to Switzerland and at the same time, the head of CIA, uh, the American ambassador at the time, uh, also joined him and a couple of other uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, figures and they basically Ashraf came back to Iran to pass the message to the Shah that the United States and Great Britain want Mossadegh to be moved from the political scene 
because actually they felt a little bit uh, uncomfortable because Iran was geopolitically a very important area. It had a massive border with the Soviet Union and obviously the oil. So definitely they wanted to push the Shah to get, get rid of Mossadegh. So Mossadegh was under pressure. Uh, sorry, the Shah was under pressure. So he basically dismisses uh, Mossadegh. But instead of basically complying with the law, Mossadegh uh, basically arrests uh, uh, the person who passed, basically he shot the messenger, and that basically alarmed the Shah. At four o'clock in the morning, he had to, he woke up, and basically he was a pilot, and uh, he and his wife, Soraya, left the country and, uh, and, went, and went to Iraq. And what happened afterwards is so interesting because the clergy, because of the, the fear of communism, played a very, very important role. Because, the, because when the Shah left, the supporters of Mossadegh were talking about establishing a republic. The two-day party, the Communist Party, they managed to mobilize about 100,000 people in Tehran. That's a lot, basically, in the early 1950s. So they were absolutely horrified that if the Shah goes, they're going to establish a communistic, a Marxist republic in Iran. And of course, that would be a very bad news for the religious society and for the clergy. So the clergy because of the fear of communism and the establishment of a kind of a republican system hardly had any interest in uh, basically Mossadegh's uh, project. And if it wasn't because of their involvement, if it wasn't because of their uh, a kind of push, uh, probably we would see kind of the end of monarchy uh, at, at that time. So although kind of the Tudor party did not play a very important role, but the perception of the Tudor party that if actually we kind of treat this matter a little bit loosely, the, the kind of the genie will get, get out of the bottle and we completely lose the control, played a very, very important role in, uh, in that very, very fateful moment in the 20th century Iranian history. Okay, so fair enough. I mean, you have now in the streets, uh, you have a certain fomentation of... Uh, anxiety that the two-day party have become uh, perhaps a little bit too close, or at least the trajectory is, is seen as problematic. Um, you've got the clergy who seem to be uh, very robust in, in their concerns and, and voicing that. How then did the Americans and the British find a space in what otherwise could have been just simply an indigenous political movement uh, and agitation. I think there's a couple of things that are worth saying about that. The first is, I would just say about the two-day in that context, like, um, as Afshin correctly said, I mean, my brother, I could definitely spend five hours t talking about the two-day party because it's such, a, it's such an interesting thing, right? Um, but I, w I would say that, um, you know, just to be really clear, absolutely like a Soviet-backed Communist Party, there is pressure from the Soviet Union, this should be the position. But it is also, there is, a, you, you know, it was a mass uh, civil political organization. It had its own way of uh, moving. It was, you know, women's organizations, uh, cultural organizations, all organized underground trade unions, all of that, these, these thousands and thousands of people. So it was a, it was a real organic living organization um, uh, and, uh, you know, ran theater companies on, and all, all kinds of things. So it wasn't something that could be, I think sometimes when we talk about that, that as a communist party, we can feel a little bit, like we can sort of slide over a couple of things. Like I would just say that it seems to me when we talk about the clergy's reaction to the idea of the communists coming, well, uh, when you look at people like, so, so there were actually some clergymen who were pro-National Front, right? You sort of Ayatollah Talaghani's and these people. But um, in terms of the more reactionary 
elements, Karshani, Behbahani, people like this. Actually, some of the stuff, what they think communism is, means stuff like uh, schooling for girls, right? You know, and complete secularism, like what yeah. Ataturk... Uh, like Atatur yeah, yeah. yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's like what we might no, think. They were kind of confusing things. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and into that mix, you have uh, basically the very, I think, shortest possible way of answering the question is you have obviously Britain as the one of the heritage imperial imperial powers in the in that part of the world has a whole network of kind of influenced organized around uh, not just politicians but also people you know powerful and less powerful bazaaris members of the clergy players of various kinds um, incidentally one of the things that in the uh, Evan Abrahamian books Abrahamian's book about the coup, he talks about is a moment of panic early on when the British realize it's probably going to be impossible to bribe Mossadegh. Like, the guys go and try and do it, and he's, he's not interested. Um, and into that, you, get, you, you start to get this cohering of, like, the kind of American technologies of social change and so on, and, and kind of not, you know, uh, quote-unquote coup. I, I, absolutely, what Afshin said is a really important point. We'll, we'll, um, we'll call it the thing. The thing. From here on <laughs> in. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, um, and you get these, these things coming together. There's a, you know, uh, there's a, uh, uh, a CIA operative called Kermit Roosevelt who uh, arrives in Iran with a bunch of money and a bunch of ideas and connects to this, this network. Now, how much he individually was the driver of what happened is a, a huge debate. He, like a lot of sort of, let's say, colonial adventurer types, he's he likes to tell a story about what he got up to. So, do you know what I mean? Like, the, I'm not sure if all, all the daring do necessarily happened the way he thought it, says it happened. Um, but in any case, uh, quite a lot of resources thrown at this. And one, again, just to speak to what you're saying about the clergy, there's a, the, you know, um, uh, there's a sort of famous uh, cliche, if you like, which you, you can find in a number of the kind of big, really good books about this period, where sort of so much, uh, so much of the networks of the kind of toughs and the thugs that are sent on the streets to smash the two day in the National Front and to ferment this unrest. So much of them are organized around the traditional networks of toughs of the bazaar who are connected to the clergy, that the money flowing around is, according to legend, referred to as dollars. Because Ayatollah Behbani is a guy who is, through two or three clicks, as you'd say on the internet, connected to the, where this money's coming in. Uh, does that make sense? Yes, uh, definitely does. And actually, you made a very interesting point. Forgive me. Uh, you made a very interesting point that, you know, for many decades, you know, when we're talking about kind of the dark side of American history in the Cold War, usually we start with what happened in 1953 in Iran because this was the first time that uh, basically the United States was actively trying to go for regime change. Uh, in the context uh, of uh, the Cold War, and we know what happened after that. We had so many other incidents in Guatemala, in Chile, in El Salvador, and actually many other countries. But despite the fact that the Americans and the Brits had the intention to remove Mossadegh, but if you do look at kind of the existing historical evidence, effectively they failed. It's not that they didn't want to, it's not because they didn't have the intention, but they failed. Because, you know, when they secretly met with the Shah's sister in, 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 in France, they basically just pushed, they wanted to push the Shah to get rid of him constitutionally. And they assumed that if he's dismissed by the Shah, hopefully this would be the end of the matter. And actually they didn't envisage anything that would potentially follow 
after that incident. Obviously, Mossadegh did not uh, kind of accept the invitation to leave the political scene, and he stayed for three more days. And when the American ambassador, who at that time, when he heard that uh, basically the Mossadegh has declined, at that time, he was in Beirut, he immediately comes to Tehran, he uh, kind of goes to meet Mossadegh, and they try to kind of reestablish, to reestablish ties. And based on kind of the documents which were kind of uh, sent from Tehran, the CIA uh, uh, reports to, to Washington, they said that actually the operation has failed. So in the end, you know, despite the fact that they had the intention, but they did not have the means to, to do anything about it, because within that three days, effectively, the, the army was in disarray. But what was the turning point? Again, going back to the, the, the role of the clergy. The clergy played a very, 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 very important role for the successful remove of Mossadegh uh, from, from the political scene. Because of that historic fear that kind of communism is, it means atheism. Communism means no God. So communism means no religion. And you can imagine, this is the 1950s Iran, the Middle East. Even if you do look at kind of the European context at the time, I mean, we're dealing with a very kind of religious kind of landscape across the world. So the, set, the, kind of the threat of being kind of confronted with a very kind of nihilistic, dangerous state like what we saw in, in the Soviet Union really alarmed the clergy. And that's why, despite the fact that in the first two days of the so-called coup, Mossadegh had, had the upper hand, but actually he could not continue because he did not have the support of, at least in the way that a lot of people argue, a lot of historians argue, he didn't have the support of the vast majority of the people. If he had, he definitely would succeed because the Shah already left the country, the military was already in disarray, but he could not kind of complete the process. Why he could not complete the process? Because the clergy was not behind him, and actually the vast majority of the people were not behind him. And actually, if I say these things to a lot of Iranians, honestly, they're going to throw an egg because this is one of the most divisive issues which actually sadly never ends. Uh, in, the, in Iran. For some people, Mossadegh is kind of the champion of freedom and liberalization and democratization, and to a degree he was. But then, at the same time, you know, there are some other aspects as well that we need to bear in mind. And despite the fact that 70 years has passed, there is no kind of national consensus about those very three fateful days in Iran and the role of Mossadegh in it. I don't think they throw eggs because they're too expensive now, so maybe something else. Uh, but um, on, on, on uh, uh, you know, uh, clearly though, 53 is, and, and the domino effect was, was such a, a powerful trope uh, in the Cold War that if one country goes uh, communist, then the domino effect will occur. This, of course, was a whole uh, notion that was uh, 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 sort of pushed on to Indochina. Uh, 53 seems to, though, be, at least in the perception of decolonialism, the first domino to go when it comes to nationalism. And then you mentioned uh, Arbenz in Guatemala with bananas. You mentioned Suez uh, in Egypt. Uh, we, we can talk about uh, Lumumba in, in 61 in Congo. We can talk about Nkrumah in Ghana, uh, Allende in, in, in uh, 1973. Uh, certainly one can talk about uh, the inspiration uh, drawn from uh, uh, the coup 
uh, for the Algerian War of Independence, which begins the very next year and is, is quite brutal. But I, I'd like to just, um, before we open it up for questions, this notion of clerical agency. I mean, here we find that there was an agitation by uh, the clerics in, in Iran, as they had been involved in the Constitutional Revolution in 1907, as they had been involved in uh, the tobacco protest of 1891. Can we draw that line then to their political agency in 1978? Uh, can I comment on that a little bit? Um, I would say a couple of things. Is just uh, absolutely, as Afshin said, there isn't consensus in the country on what happened in those three days. My understanding is there's not scholarly historical consensus on, on, on what happened in those days. Um, what, uh, what we do know is that Mossadegh ends up overthrown and kind of what the, in a way that's kind of similar to what the plan was. Do you know what I mean? How we get there, we don't know. Um, in terms of that uh, that question about clerical agency, I would say, as Ashim was saying, absolutely, you know, such an important point. It, it's meaningless to say Mossadegh had the support of the broad mass of Iranians at that time. It's definitely not the case. But I, 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 I suppose what I would add to that is I would say that in terms of that process of more and more, if we go back to uh, the tobacco movement and then the constitutional movement and so on and so on, uh, each wave of those political movements, more people coming onto that stage. It seems to me that actually in, 50, in the early 50s, in 52, 53, it's not, it's not, we can't even just say most Iranians didn't support Mossadegh. We can still say a good proportion of Iranians didn't probably feel Iranian yet, didn't feel like that was their, their, their purview. Um, and it's clear that, like for instance, the Tudor, as I say, hugely impressive, massive, secular civil society organization, one of the first ones in the Middle East, one of its many impressive things was its organization of uh, a secret military organization, which in, uh, you know, in the great tradition of those kinds of third world communist organizations, uh, you know, uh, full of all kinds of like mustached, dashing young NCOs with ideas about building dams and making their country modern, right? Um, and, and, uh, but it was a very serious organization, you know, secret, underground, guys with military training, and what was it able to achieve in terms of the period of the coup? Pretty much fuck all, right? Because the other guys won, okay? So that, that's, what it, that's what that would suggest. Um, now, why is that? And I, 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 I think there's two, two things we can talk about. One is, actually, the Shah having, you know, one of the, it's very easy to think about this, the, the last Shah as a sort, of, uh, a sort of playboy figure, you know, in this. But he, there's, there's, there's moments of real political clarity to him and, and cleverness to him. And my understanding is that, that certain uh, uh, regiments that were based in, Tehran, particularly tank regiments, were paid better than other members of the army, and their officer corps received political training about the nature of the Pahlavi regime that other members of the army didn't. So they were absolutely loyal to the Shah all the way through that. The other point, of course, is that a lot of the army would have been made up of national service boys and this kind of stuff, and this gets into this question for me that goes, super interesting, right? The, this country at this stage, there is a proportion of the country who are in a modern trade union or support the National Front or in Tehran, and they might be thinking, on either side of this, they're willing to die and be killed for Iran. But then there's a whole other section of the country where die or be killed for Iran just doesn't mean anything. What means something is the, f the family you belong to and the tribe you belong to and the village and the this and the that. Um, and so when I think when we think about a lot of the decolonial history here, we often want to think about colonialism, imperialism as uh, the West just did things, but actually like there's this whole other churn of social organization working there, you know, that's organic in its own regard. In answer to the clergy question, long story short, 
the clergy is a very complicated, contradictory, odd thing that has its whole own line of flight and development through the 20th century in Iran. Like it, you could say, if you, if you were going to be a Marxist about it, you could say it's got its own sort of development as a class through the 20th century. Um, and in fact, its role has been entirely contradictory all the way through that. It's very easy to look back and go, well, Khomeini took power in 79, so the, the development of the clergy in Iran was all leading towards describe it how you want, a vicious, misogynistic, reactionary, you know, whatever, anti-democratic regime. But actually, there were, I think it's fair to say, and Ashin can correct me on this, I think it's fair to say more of the clergy, certainly more of the famous clergy, supported the constitutional revolution than were against it. So, uh, you know, Fazl al Nuri's against it, but a bunch of more famous people at the time are for it. You know, uh, for every Karshani who's anti uh, Mossadegh in the Mossadegh years, you have a, a Talagani who's, who's, who's pro it and so on. Um, and so it's important that we don't look back anachronistically and, and, and sort of do that thing where you know, history becomes a prologue to the present. Good point. And with that, let's go ahead and open it up to some questions. We have a roving mic. We have time for, I think, maybe three questions, four if we are on a diet. Yeah. Could I, I don't want to widen this too far, but 1953, 1956, Eisenhower backs uh, the movement and the alleged coup against Mossadegh. Why in 56 did he stop the British uh, in uh, Egypt from, na from being uh, successful in anti-NASA uh, uh, and the nationalization of the canal? What was the difference between Eisenhower's attitude in 53 and 56? Why did he change? I, I mean, I, I think they just, the Americans had a wildly different policy towards NASA and Egypt to the British. Um, I, you know, I'm, not, I, I, I'm a, an artist who makes documentaries that, some document, post-documentary theatre that's to do with this, but my legitimate historian colleagues, I'm sure, have more uh, to sort of say about that, but wildly different policies on, uh, on NASA. Just uh, the first disagreement between Britain and United States over Suez crisis in 1956 was simply because of the fact that the Americans were not informed. The Brits did not even tell the Americans that they're going to take over Suez Canal. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, Britain, and that's why, you know, uh, a lot of modern historians regard the Suez uh, kind of crisis as a turning point in the British role in the global politics. Because this is the, because Britain said, why should I consult with anybody? I mean, if we disagree with this country, we go and take over. And they did it, but obviously the United States uh, did not like it very much. So they put a lot of pressure. And the other thing about 1953, as I said, at least based on the reliable historical evidence that I had been able to, to look at, I think the role of American involvement in the so-called the coup is very much exaggerated. We get kind of a lot of our data from a kind of book, a very unreliable book, which was published in 1978 by Kim Roosevelt, basically the, uh, the CIA operative kind of agent in Iran. And obviously in that book, because he, he was kind of trying to justify his own actions and try to make a hero uh, out of himself and say, actually, the, we did it. Americans actually orchestrated the coup. But when you do look at the evidence when you do look at kind of the evidence on the ground, yes, the Americans wanted to get rid of Mossadegh, but their involvement in that transition, in my opinion, is very, very much exaggerated. I would say there's a few other uh, things to consider. 56 uh, was after 1954. 
which means it's after Dien Bien Phu. Um, the United States has now taken over from France in uh, Indochina. Uh, there's also an excellent book by Alex von Tunzelman uh, called Blood and Sand, which talks about 1956. Uh, arguably, American involvement in, uh, in the region uh, and, and the Suez intervention was uh, due in part to Hungary uh, and the Soviet, Union, uh, the Soviet Union's invasion of Hungary in that, uh, that year, and the prospect of the Soviet Union now turning its eye onto the Middle East, something that it really hadn't done in any great measure uh, until uh, this point. Uh, of course, today's a whole different story with Russia uh, being, uh, being in, uh, um, in, in Syria. Um, but the fact that uh, it was also an election year uh, for Eisenhower in 1956, uh, the idea of then being mired elsewhere uh, was also something to, uh, to consider. But I think that the point that Afshin made, that uh, uh, the United States was really bamboozled by both the British and the French and the Israelis, and, and, and the Israelis uh, by, by, by keeping, uh, keeping them in, uh, in the dark. I think we have time for one more question, if, uh, if someone has it. Uh, okay, well then I'll go ahead. Oh, we do have a question. Okay, excellent. It's like an auction. You wait till the second uh, going twice. Wonderful. Uh, thank you, guys. Um, just with regards to the, the whole history of um, British involvement, right from the, the, the setup of the Anglo-Iranian, the coup, all the other interference, and obviously since the uh, Islamic Republic established, they've been at loggerheads constantly. Um, what um, do you think, what would you like to, big question, uh, how would you see uh, a, a productive engagement from the current or future British establishments uh, for the benefit of the people of Iran? In, in terms of like a, an, an ethical, uh, productive foreign policy, what do you think that um, specifically Britain but the West could do to improve relations and to improve the prospects of democracy? Uh, this is a fantastic question, but I believe it is for the next panel. Because, <laughs> because I don't know if you have time or not, but I encourage you to stay because the next panel is going to be about woman life freedom movement. Both Javad and I are going to be a part of that panel and then maybe we definitely can talk about uh, what Britain can do to uh, empower people in Iran. And definitely there are a lot Britain can do, believe me. Yeah, my, my question, since I'm not going to be on the panel, is nothing. Uh, I think that that ship has sailed. I think when you have China investing $400 billion over 25 years uh, in Iran, when you have China brokering a detente between uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, I think the United States, the United Kingdom, and other Western parties are going to have to do a little soul-searching about how they can then uh, make their case to have credibility uh, within uh, Iran uh, and to do it above board instead of something that might be seen as surreptitious, suspicious, and dangerous. Yeah, but just very quickly, I mean, what I gather, I mean, uh, when kind of I look at kind of the demand of the Iranian society today I mean we had six months of protests in Iran very rarely you heard somebody saying I don't know down with Britain never down with never the absolutely never. well the only people who say that would be people who support the regime exactly yeah so I'm, uh, I'm, and I'm not disagreeing with you I'm just saying that now that there are other uh, superpower players uh, and I'm not saying this as uh, to dissuade people from doing anything I'm just saying that now the variables have have changed dramatically but I personally believe that, you know, I've been kind of lobbying a lot of politicians and I have spoken to a lot of parliaments over the last uh, six or seven months because I believe that given where Iran is at the moment economically, where the Islamic Republic is economically, there is a lot the Europeans can do 
there is a lot the Americans can do. Of course, they can't create miracle. We don't want any military intervention. We don't want any kind of military involvement. But there is a lot politically and economically they can do to undermine the regime. But if the regime is actually selling more oil today than last year and the year before that and the year before that, that means basically the mechanisms of social control, the violent mechanisms of social control are still funded by the oil money. And believe it or not, maybe over the last six or seven months when the Iranian regime were killing Iranian protesters in streets of Tehran, you were using oil which was sold in the black market by the Iranian agents to countries like Britain. And maybe you have not realized that. And it has happened. Thank you. Thank you. What I'll throw in is a couple of, there's a big, big answer to that. As a, as a absolutely just building what Afshin says, a, precise, a kind of smaller answer to that, I would say definitely one thing you hear from people on the streets is Iran is tougher but more surgically uh, kind of uh, guided sanctions against the way that people are breaking the sanctions regime regimes in Iran. A really great thing coming out of Germany was uh, Green Party, largely Green Party MPs in Germany taking up the cases of very specific people on death row about to face execution in Iran and just not shutting up about them. Um, and actually that seems to have had some sort of effects. And finally, like, I, 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 I I th think it's probably true of both of us. You know, uh, I would say that, like, uh, you know, um, uh, if you want to know, if you're a Persian speaker, if you can speak the language, you want to know what is going on in Iran today, you don't understand that by watching Iranian TV or Iranian newspapers. It is not a very good idea to be a talented journalist ira in Iran for the obvious reasons. What you watch is things like BBC Persian. You watch the Radio Free Europe network. There is a broader cultural role that the West can play, which is not to do with military intervention and that kind of stuff, but which is about going, what does a pro-democracy foreign policy look like, as opposed to a pro-let's-launder-some-money-for-some-oligarchs foreign policy. All right. Well, on that note of optimism, which I can't share because uh, quiet desperation is the English way, <laughs> um, I'd like to thank both uh, Afshin Shahi, Javad uh, Alipur, who will be joining you um, for the sequel of this, which I'm sure you will enjoy. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being at the Bradford uh, Liter uh, Literature Festival. Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the festival, please subscribe, share this episode with others and leave a rating. Don't forget to mark your calendars as the Bradford Literature Festival returns for its 10th year from 28th of June to the 7th of July 2024.